Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today, my guest is Brian K. Mitchell, and we will be talking about his graphic history, Monumental, Oscar Dunn and His Radical Fight in Reconstruction, Louisiana, published by the Historic New Orleans Collection in 2021. He worked on Monumental with Nick Weldon, an associate editor at the Historic New Orleans Collection and Barrington S. Edwards of the Massachusetts College of Arts and Design illustrated the book. Dr. Brian K. Mitchell is an assistant professor of history at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, and an associate faculty member at the Anderson Institute on Race and Ethnicity. He earned his PhD in urban studies with a concentration in public history at the University of New Orleans, his hometown, and his research on race, violence, and the Elaine Massacre has been covered by CNN, NPR, Atlas Obscura, The Guardian, and Associated Press. Previously, he was a senior senior federal investigator for the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. Professor Mitchell, Brian, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. It's wonderful being here, Mike. Yeah, so congratulations on this project. It is uh, both an important work of history, but also uh, a stimulating visual presentation. Uh, and it covers this historic, important historic figure who has been left out of most narratives of Louisiana history, something that would have shocked the people of New Orleans at the time of Oscar Dunn's sudden and somewhat mysterious death in 1871. Indeed, plans were made and funds raised for a monument to Oscar Dunn after what was, by some accounts, the largest funeral in the city's history. However, the monument was never built. Instead, the Jim Crow era saw Dunn's legacy erased, and New Orleans had a statue of a Confederate general and a monument to an act of violent white supremacist terrorism. So monumental is a much-needed and long-overdue correction. And again, as a graphic history, it is so visually engaging. So um, before we get into the book itself, would you please tell us a little bit about your life and your intellectual trajectory? Um, How did you become a historian? Was it because of your connection to Oscar Dunn? And um, this is well, this is a graphic history, and uh, I think you and I are both comics fans. So, right. so tell us your origin story in, uh, <laughs> as they say, in the comics world, right? Okay. Well, my mother moved away from New Orleans uh, when I was quite young. In fact, I was uh, barely—I don't think I was a year old when she moved to Illinois, and we lived in Chicago. And she was a student. So um, when she was studying and uh, doing papers, what she would do to uh, occupy my time was to go to museums. And I went to museums like every day. So, and Chicago's a great place for that because at the time, I don't know if it's still this way, but museums were free to, uh, you know, to uh, admission was free to get in. 
And I would just go on tours while she, right, yeah. while she studied or worked. And yeah. I got to know the museums, all of them, you know, uh, the Field Museum, the Museum of Science and Industry, um, uh, the art museums that were there. I mean, I regularly went to all of them and uh, I fell in love with history there. And I didn't know what what field I would be in or with tracks or concentrations at that point. But I knew I'd be doing something uh, with history later in my life. It's a, a solid plug for museums, for public history, public facing scholarship, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So were, were you like me? Were you like an, uh, an, uh, a young history nerd who like, yes, I'm going to become a historian. I think I was, I think I was like 15. Um, <laughs> No, I think I was three or four. Oh, uh, right on. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the, the first, I always tell, and in fact, I have a, a little cousin who's who's entered the history gateway drug. And I, I always say that archaeology is the history gateway drug. We all want to be <laughs> Indiana Jones. We all want to, you know, uh, you know, discover some lost tomb. So I archaeology was a path that I initially thought that I would go into, particularly Egyptology was mm -hmm. huge, but, you know, back in the seventies, eighties and Carter and Tutankhamun were, were touring the world. And, um, so yeah, I, I, I was bitten by that bug. So early on. Great. Great. And you've also got a, um, a connection to Oscar Dunn. Yes, I do. Um, we are related to Oscar Dunn. It's a very distant relation, uh, distant cousins of Oscar James Dunn. So uh, the family connection plays into the book also yeah. because I had spent a large uh, amount of my life away at that, from that point perspective, away from my family. So I'd grown up at that point in Chicago. And when I came back to New Orleans, it was, I wasn't a New Orleanian. I had to learn what it meant to be a New Orleanian. I had to learn um, about family history because we had no other family in in, in Chicago besides uh, uh, my mother. So when I came back, one of the things that I would do uh, was go to my grandmother's house every day after school. And I was in a little public school, Paul Lawrence Dunbar Public School. And it was close enough to my grandmother's house where I could walk, you know, walk to her, uh, walk to her home. And I was in second grade. And I, I remember this because it was the bicentennial year. And the bicentennial year, I was collecting my bicentennial quarters. And, you know, uh, it, it was a very memorable time. And every day after school, you go to your great grandmother's house. There's really nothing to do. Her television's black and white, and everybody has color by then, <laughs> and it's a little itty-bitty set. So uh, what I would do was to go through photographs, scrapbooks, and she kept old magazines. And I found an old scrapbook with photographs in it and noticed a really old newspaper article about Oscar Dunn. And the first thing that caught my eyes was the last name was the same as my mother's maiden name and my grandmother. So I asked my grandmother about the article and she noted that her, um, 
late husband, my uh, great grandfather, that was a distant cousin of his who had served as lieutenant governor. And it happened by uh, happenstance that we were studying uh, local government in my second grade class. So when I returned to class, I thought it was going to, you know, show off a little bit being the new kid in school. And the teacher asked, does anyone know any other governors or lieutenant governors that served in the state? And I put up my hand and, yeah, you know, I have this ancestor who was a, a lieutenant governor. And she said, no, that can't be true, that there were no African-American uh, lieutenant governors or governors. And I said, well, you're, you're wrong. There are three of them. <laughs> and she got very upset with that. Um, and, I, yeah. you know, I pointed out that Dunn had been the first, followed by Pinchback, and then uh, Cece Antoine. And what I was baffled about and didn't understand, I, of course, I went home and told my grandmother. Um, and one of the things she told me is people forgot him. And that, that mm -hmm. baffled me. Like, how could something like the first of something be forgotten and someone so important be forgotten? So it sort of puzzled me for many years. And when I got to, I went through junior high, there was no mention of them. Went through high school, no mention of them. Yeah. And it wasn't until college that I actually had my first African-American uh, professors, and these had been my, my first African American male teachers ever. Was, um, was your second grade teacher white? Uh, she was a black female. Black female. Black but female. Teaching the New Orleans or the Louisiana State standards. I mean, it's just right. it's not in there. But yeah, go on. Yeah, and even today, in many uh, states, you're not required to take African American history um, or to right. Know no, I, me I meant the, 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 that she's. You know, to be empathetic to her, she's teaching the the standards that the public school teachers have to teach, and that's, exactly. that's just not included in there, right? Exactly. Yeah. At yeah. this point, definitely, this would not have been included in there, and I doubt yeah. that there are very there's probably in the last ten years there's been discussion, more discussion, mm -hmm. and more more inclusion. But prior to that, probably not. Yeah, I, I I really love that section of the book. Um, I mean, I love one of the things I love about the graphic history is, is breaking down the fourth wall, and and we get to see you know the the origin story, or just sort of get to see the connection between the author and the subject matter in a way that most of us don't do in our conventional um, academic prose, right? I mean, it's it's kind of awkward, and 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 there isn't a way, but. It's almost expected in some of these uh, these graphic histories that we have this engagement, and I thought that that um, that story of of you in the second grade classroom was just such an insight into the distinction between what is the official narrative of history shaped by decades of Jim Crow and silencing silencing you know Reconstruction. Um, uh, contrasting that with family memory and oral tradition, and what you're learning, uh, learning at your great grandmother's house. It also says a lot about representation, and yes. one of the things yeah. I, I try to do in my classrooms um, is make my the history that I teach as diverse as possible, so uh, every student can see, you know, himself or herself inside of history, and and know that we all make up the fabric. That is America. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
So um, why did you want to do this as a graphic history? Um, there's, there's a story behind that. Yeah, and let's hear it. Initially, like I said, it starts off as my dissertation. And I get out and I want to do a book. And uh, I'm not quite ready. Katrina hits the city. I find myself out of academia, actually uh, working as a federal investigator. But I always want to return to Dunn. Well, when I do return to academia, I get emails from people who are who are actually using the dissertation in their classrooms. And a young man wrote me, he and his father wrote me from Ohio, and he was in middle school. And he their their middle school is actually reading the dissertation. And really? Wow. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah, impressed. right on. Yeah. It was an <laughs> honors class and I was like, wow. And so yeah. I, you know, I, I they put a number on and I call the number and I talk to the dad and the son. And, you know, you want to quiz him to see, you know, whether he's taken away the yeah, information yeah. you hoped he'd taken away from it. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And at the end of the conversation, I asked, you know, you know, how can I make this better for um, everybody, you know, kids your age, kids that are possibly older. And he said, you know, what would be great? He said a lot of, he said, I like to read and I didn't mind reading it, but a lot of, a lot of kids my age won't want to read that much. And he said, it would be great if you could do it as a comic or a graphic novel. And I had known Trevor Getz, uh, mm-hmm. who'd done Albania, and I gave him he's, a call. He's sort of for the for the uninitiated. He's he's our he's he's the dean of graphic history these days, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> exactly. he's the godfather. <laughs> so I gave, being I, important men. I yeah. gave him a call, and I said, yeah. "Hey, you know, Trevor, you know, could you hook me up with uh, Oxford?" So I called the U.S. history editor at that point and began talking to him. We thought we'd narrowed down an artist. And when we were ready to go on the project, he took another job. And the new editor that came in said, look, not interested in doing anything the other guy had started. So I'm sorry. So I put it on the burner once again. And it wasn't until um, this I, I say scandal, but the controversy in regard to monument removal in the city of New Orleans, that it comes to the forefront again. And one of the people I am forever thankful to is Governor Mitz Landrieu um, and his decision to take down the monument. He opened a broader discussion of representation and public history and public spaces and it's in that conversation that Dunn comes up again. And it's at that point that the Historic New Orleans Collection reaches out to me and we, we begin discussing this notion of doing a graphic history. Fantastic. And, that, and that's what, 2017? Oh, that's just four years when, ago. Yeah. When did they take the monuments down? 2017? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So well, let's let, let's get into the history of the book, um, or the history that's in the book. We were doing the history of the book already. Um, so tell us about um, the racial demographics of New Orleans in the mid nineteenth century. Um, it was not simply a case of black and white, as I understand it. Before the Civil War, there's distinctions within the black community between enslaved and free, uh, but also between Anglo African and Afro Creole. 
Um, and that's a distinction which survives emancipation. So could you please tell us about these differences and um, what they meant for identity and politics in New Orleans, and also the, the diversity and the vibrancy of the community in the mid-19th century? Well, one of the things that we have to understand is that with the Louisiana Purchase and uh, the development of the Mississippi uh, River Valley, you have an influx of an enormous amount of uh, slaves that come from the east coast of the United States. Um, and there are some f- free blacks that make their way down also, but they don't share the same culture with the African-Americans, free or slaves, that had been in the Mississippi River Valley prior to um, the American uh, the Americans purchasing the territory. Um, the biggest divide between the two groups was a linguistic and a religious divide. So... Many of the people who are coming from uh, the eastern seaboard, and they refer to them in New Orleans uh, at the period all by the same name. They call them Virginia Negroes. So mm-hmm. Virginia Negroes were coming in that were Protestant, and they were clashing quite often with um, the Afro-Creos who were Catholic. Uh, the people coming from Virginia were English speakers, and the people who are here were French speakers. And it's in this climate that the protagonist of the book, um, Oscar Dunn, is born. And he's born in the midst of of these two worlds, really three worlds, when you count uh, the American uh, white citizenry. So he's born in the midst of these three worlds, and he has to figure out a way to navigate it. And he's born with a severe disability. And that disability is he's enslaved at birth. Um, right. so his, his, his mother Maria was enslaved. His so mother he's, Maria he's, he's was born owned by into slavery. a yeah. merchant by the name of Bowers. And so he's born a slave, which puts him at a huge disadvantage. Had it not been for, in the, the most pivotal point in his early life, was a relationship that he will have with his stepfather. And his stepfather is a free man of color that comes down from Petersburg, Virginia, to help um, the theater impresario uh, Caldwell build his theater there. And he's able to purchase Dunn's mother, Dunn, and his Dunn's sister out of bondage. And this will change Dunn's life dramatically. And the first point of this change is it opens him up to education. At that point in the city, education wouldn't have been available to him as a slave. And education isn't, uh, there isn't a public school for African Americans. His parents uh, quite literally have to pay for his education. And it's important that we note that both his parents were illiterate. So they know the value of this education, even though they do not possess the education that they so, want so his, their son so, to acquire. Yeah, so Oscar Dunn's father is illiterate, but he still it has enough means um, to to purchase Maria and in and um uh, and free them. And he has he has a certain stature, right? So right. And as a free man of color, right. you right. get to use those three initials after your name. You have a last name. Uh, these all distinguish you as 
someone who's free and that you have a certain mobility that slaves do not have. You can come and go um, at your own at your own pace and at, and do the things that you desire to do. You can be a part of organizations in the community and, and this this freedom of movement and freedom of association will um, be huge benefits in Dunn's life. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that he's part of organizations and uh, um, there's a couple organizations that he joins that play an important role. He, he's a member of the church and he also joins the Freemasons. Yes. So and what, it, what, not, what did, not just the member yeah. of any church. He's a, yeah. a member yeah. of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which um, outside of New Orleans was enormous, particularly in the North. In the South, um, New Orleans has one of the few congregations, but has the largest congregation in the Deep South. So Dunn is able to elevate himself within the church, uh, becoming a key figure within that church, a recognizable figure within that church. The other organization that he's a critical part of are the Prince Hall Freemasons. And he joins Freemasonry, and we know a great deal about uh, his joining Freemasonry, we know uh, when he joined Freemasonry, we know when he received the rank of uh, of journeyman, we know when he received the uh, rank of Master Mason, we know positions that he held, um, because the records were so good uh, that were kept at that period of time by the Freemasons. Uh, we have a great deal of information about him. And what we learn from his experiences with the Freemasons is he learns to govern there. He learns how to govern men and how to govern in a system uh, that's truly designed by WAPS. He, he learns Robert's rules of order. He learns, you know, how I'm to... Gonna, as, as a member of my department, I'm still working on that at the university. <laughs> but, yeah. He learns how to address meetings. He learns yeah. public speaking Yes, uh, yeah. through that organization. And... Uh, even though he has not elevated to any public office at this point, he's highly regarded in the African-American community in a number of different areas, both by the Anglo community and by uh, the Afro-Creole community. Having been born immer immersed in these, two, in these worlds, he speaks both languages and he's able to navigate both worlds. Right. Although the, the Masonic Lodge he's a member of is all black, right? It's, not it's entirely black, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us about uh, New Orleans and the Civil War. Uh, for those unfamiliar with this theater of, um, of the Civil War, it's, it's slightly different, right? Um, could you explain the unique experience of the city and, and what this meant for Oscar Dunn and for, uh, for the other African-Americans in the, in the city? One of the early strategies that Grant has in taking the South is to divide the South into two regions. And he realizes he must cut the purse strings of the South. And the South's purse strings were intimately connected to getting cotton out. So it became critical for Grant to control the flow of cotton down the Mississippi River and to control the mouth of the river to ensure that none of that cotton could be sold to England and thereby. Um, keep the treasury of the Confederacy. Yeah, you keep fun, keep yeah. funding the war, right? Yeah. So uh, his strategy was a simple one. I'm going to attack uh, the city of New Orleans by water, 
and we're going to send a fleet up the Mississippi River. And this fleet is, read, is led by Admiral Farragut. Farragut uh, positions his guns at the city of New Orleans and gives them a, an ultimatum. <laughs> Either surrender or I'll level the city. And all of the, the Confederate soldiers abandon the city. And Butler was able to come in, take the city, and possess the city. So when we talk about Reconstruction, Reconstruction begins in the city of New Orleans because it becomes the first major city that is occupied long term and controlled by the military forces. Right. What year is the occupation? Uh, 1863. 63, yeah. Yeah. Right. So two years before the ending of the war, um, Grant controls a major southern city and the Mississippi River. So what does that mean for the black community in the city that you have this reconstruction before reconstruction? Well, it meant for many people that had been forced to join the Native Guard. Uh, A Native Guard was a portion of the Confederate Army that was all volunteer and all black. They immediately desert. And they all change sides and join the they join uh, a native guard now run by the Union, becoming uh, the first really uh, black line officers that uh, the Union has. And they'll be, they'll prove themselves in battle. They'll also be one of the first military units to engage um, to be used by the Union forces, the first uh, black military units to engage Confederate forces. And they will engage uh, those Confederate forces at Port Hudson and uh, prove themselves as, you know, capable of fighting to uh, the same standards as the white soldiers, that they wouldn't run away. There was this big concern whether African-American soldiers would truly fight or would they, in the face of people that they saw as their former masters, just flee. And when they stand their, their ground at Port Hudson, Um, there's a great enthusiasm that uh, African-Americans could be brought in in even greater numbers. And when we look at what was the actual turning of the tide of the Civil War, uh, the introduction of 200,000 African-Americans made it impossible for the Confederacy to to win the war. Right. So – when Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, what does that what does that mean for New Orleans, and and what does what does Oscar Dunn do at that point? There's a a great feeling of enthusiasm in the city among all free blacks, both Afro Creoles and Anglo Africans, uh, but none of them knew what exactly that would bring. What does it mean for us if the slaves are freed? I mean. What is the nature of our citizenship at that point? So they begin petitioning uh, Abraham Lincoln to um, recognize them and to enfranchise them with voting rights. And they have this strategy that they employ that is brilliant for its day. And it's insightful who they select to send to represent them in Washington, D.C. And the decision is they they form an organization called Friends of Universal Suffrage. And the Friends of Universal Suffrage decide to send two uh, men that they will hold as representative of the free black community. Uh, 
Now they know that Af- they know that many people in D.C., although a northern city, are don't see blacks as equals. So they realize that they have to send people of exemplary stature, and they pick two gentlemen uh, who appear to be physically white, who uh, speak fluent French and English, that have. Uh, not some sort of creole, men. but not some sort of creole, but real French, right? Yeah. No, no, no. They they are they are actually Afro Creoles, but they had been right. educated in France. Right. But they're, but they're but linguistically they're speaking French, not oh not yes, a, not, not a patois, not, not, yeah, yeah, not a patois. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. They they, they, so they, speak, they can they can they can they can pass in a couple ways, right? And in any number of ways they could pass. Yeah. And one had been an officer. In the Union, and and we know that these men impressed Abraham Lincoln by looking at the very last address that he gives before uh, he's assassinated, and in it he notes about the exception of the people of color in the city, these people who had been free, these people who had been uh, landowners, and these these men who had participated in the war. And he he maintains in this last address that he would not be he would not object to the limited enfranchisement of men such as these. So, I mean, that's a huge, uh, you know, and that that's something that people really, I think, in general, don't know is this stand that and and what it meant for African Americans throughout the South, what it meant when we start talking about you know, voting rights. Um, Unfortunately, just days later, uh, Abraham Lincoln will be shot. Johnson will come in and Johnson uh, will begin uh, trying to turn back, uh, turn the South back to its antebellum ways. And local politicians in Louisiana will begin passing black codes and passing uh, apprenticeship programs to re-enslave Black children who had once been uh, slaves on plantations. Yeah. So, could you could you say a little bit more about the Black Codes? They're they're passed in in eighteen eighty six. Um. No, and, they begin. They begin. Eighteen. I'm sorry. Eighteen sixty six. Sorry. Eighteen sixty six. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, these codes were meant to re-enslave the recently emancipated. And many of these codes, we still have vestiges of these codes now. When we talk about uh, vagrancy laws and loitering laws, uh, the, free, the recently emancipated freedmen had no homes to go to. So this notion that police would stop them and say, okay, where do you live? I don't have a house. They could immediately arrest them and send them right back to the plantation to work for food. So uh, in essence, what uh, the black coats were meant to do were to return the freedmen back to a condition of servitude that it resembled a slavery almost exactly. And, and unemployment was something that they could, they could be grabbed for, right? Vagrancy, unemployment, loitering. Unemployment, uh, any number of things. I mean, being out after a certain time, drinking publicly, public intoxication, any number of rules uh, were set up and established and were only applied to blacks. Right. And that was meant 
uh, strictly to rob them of their freedom. Right. But, but Oscar Dunn is somewhat, uh, has a certain degree of class privilege at this point, right? He's, he's, he's established, uh, he has a trade. He has yeah, a trade. Been, we, we haven't talked about his yeah, trade yeah, because yeah. Uh, his father initially had him apprenticed to a plasterer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leaves school at the age of 14 or 15. He's apprenticed to a plasterer. He hates plastering. He leaves a couple <laughs> times, becomes a musician. Uh, he loves uh, music, but right. um, there is a scandal in the city that draws him away from that occupation. And he wants an occupation where he has leisure time to read. He is an avid reader. So an opportunity opens for him. And this opportunity uh, involves the plantation owners and the freedmen. He realizes, and and quite astutely, that plantation owners need a labor. And uh, the former freedmen need jobs. So I can facilitate by writing contracts that uh, for these individuals who know nothing of wages, know nothing of uh, cost of living, I can write contracts to put them back to work. And this uh, both pleases the former masters because they get a labor force and it satisfies the needs of the freedmen that they're not being exploited. Uh, someone's someone's looking out for them, exactly. someone that they you know of that their they community. Trust. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also does something for Dunn. It makes him wealthy. I mean, he yeah. does become wealthy as a result of uh, this new occupation that he has discovered. But uh, very quickly, uh, things begin to escalate in the city. And in 1866, as uh, Blacks began to organize to push for voting rights and civil rights. There will be uh, two major riots that break out, one in the city of Memphis and the other in the city of New Orleans that summer. And this will force Congress uh, to uh, put military troops in control of the South, dividing the South into five military districts. this is an opportunity for Dunn because uh, what the generals of those districts very quickly realize when they take possession of those districts is that many of the white men who were currently in charge had participated in those riots. So they use uh, their participation to uh, make everyone vacate their offices and begin appointing individuals. And they realized at that point also that there were many African-Americans who were eager to participate in government. And Dunn is one of these individuals that they appoint to a position. What's that position he gets appointed to? The very first position he's appointed to is the junior city council. The council head uh, was a bicameral unit at, Mm -hmm. at that point. So there was an upper council and a junior council. And he is initially uh, appointed to the junior council. And then, how does how does he start to make his way up? And he um, he becomes he becomes the the first uh, African American in a judiciary position before. Right, um, he's before, also given. Yeah. And if at this point you could have more than one appointment, he's also <laughs> <Nice>. appointed <laughs> to this to the second uh, the second districts. Um, 
Oh, what's the second district had a municipal officer and he is made the assistant to the second. It's called a recorder. And a recorder is, in essence, a miniature mayor that ran mm-hmm. these little districts. He has made the assistant uh, recorder of the second district. And serving in that capacity, uh, the recorder that he served under would have to recuse himself from a case because he knew um uh, he knew an individual within that case. And it's at that point that uh, Dunn will have to take over as judge in that hearing, making him the first African-American in the state ever to participate uh, as a judge uh, in any court in the state. And it, what's funny about the very first case is neither side wants to recognize his authority to be a judge. Um neither the plaintiff or the defendant. And he has to hold both of them in contempt and have them both arrested. <laughs> wow. That, yeah, that, that's, a, that's an amazing story. Um, and then also, what could you say a few words on the police force in, um, in the city at this time and the, the tensions within the police force? And be- um, just like there were many uh, politicians that had participated in the riot of 1866, <sighs> There were many uh, police that had participated, and there were many police who were uh, strongly strong supporters of this uh, Democrat cause of white and black separation. Uh, it's in this atmosphere that Dunn uh, and the Republicans will emerge and believe that a second police force is needed. So a second police force is created in the city called the Metropolitan Police. and these will be a rival police forces in the same city and would often clash with one another. So two, and, two different police forces within <laughs> the city. One's right. tied to the, um, the white supremacist cause of the Democrats. The right. other's uh, more tied to the Republican party and the police force is, is integrated, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's it's black integrated officers, white and, officers. And just as the, the military generals that were running the districts, had selected black men to participate, they begin to select when they uh, form this police force of former soldiers. And and some of them uh, were African-American soldiers, Um, but all of them very loyal to the Republican cause. (laughs) And they realized that they needed a police force in case another rebellion happened. Right. Right. Um, So, uh, could you tell us about Henry Clay Warmoth? Um, who 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 was he, and what's his early relationship to Dunn? Henry Clay Warmoth uh, was a very young man at the time of the Civil War, and and is able be, uh, and quite the silver tongued devil. <laughs> He's able to elevate himself very very quickly in the ranks of the military. Um, but I mean, he's, he's like his early twenties, right? Yeah, and he he gotten to be a colonel. In the military, yeah. uh, he has a personal run-in with Grant, and Grant right. will will have him kicked out of. He will have him discharged, dishonorably discharged, uh, for cowardice or refusing to go out and face the enemy. And uh, he will appeal. Well, Warmoth will appeal to Abraham Lincoln um, not to give him a dishonorable discharge, uh, and Lincoln will. Uh, and and the the story is that 
he appealed to Lincoln being a son of Illinois and him himself being a son of Illinois. Look, you can't, you know, put this disgrace on my family. <laughs> so uh, he says, sure, you know, I won't, I won't, I'll let you go ahead and gracefully bow out of it. So he takes a position as a judge in Texas and, uh, there's a black there's sort of a black market for cotton and cotton's disappearing and when he gets wrapped up into that scandal he's run out of texas and he makes his way to new orleans and one of the first things he does is realize the opportunity that's before him in new orleans he sees all of these black people organizing together and he sends a message to to dunn that he'd like to meet with him and Dunn meets with him and he says, look, I'm really interested in your cause. I believe that blacks and whites are equal. And I think I can help you guys because I used to be a colonel <laughs> and I can I can convince people in D.C. that you guys need the right to vote. And Dunn embraces him, brings him into the organization, believing that they need this sort of representative, a white individual who can represent them in D.C., that they will have no bias against. Yeah, he, he, he um, Dunn brings him into both the Masonic Lodge and the Republican Party? Um, not the Masonic Lodge, but not the Masonic definitely Lodge. Okay. the Friends of Universal Suffrage. Okay, there we go. So yeah. he, he brings right. him into the, the Friends of Universal Suffrage. Right. And... Uh, from there, he positions him as this leader within the party, someone yeah. we can trust who's white. And in and, and much the same way as we have young white liberals today, and they go into the black community, and black community says, oh, my goodness, yeah, we love this guy. He, he, says, he says all the right things. Well, that was Warmoth. <laughs> yeah. Except when Warmoth gets power and does become governor, the very first thing he does is betray the trust of these individuals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is he, is, is Warmoth a, a classic carpetbagger, northerner coming down, taking yeah, advantage of the Yeah, if you were to situation? look in, in the dictionary under carpetbagger, there should be a picture. A little, little picture of him. Okay. He, he comes in penniless and leaves the state fantastically wealthy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, how? So, so you said he gets elected governor, um, and Oscar Dunn is his um, lieutenant governor. And Oscar does it. He wants out of politics. Uh, he wants out. Yeah. So yeah. It, when they're actually nominating, uh, when the eighteen sixty eight nom- nominations for uh, for governor and lieutenant governor there. He's ready to bow out of politics completely, go back to this lucrative business he was running and just be, he had just recently been married, be the happy newlywed rich guy. But by a nice house on Canal Street, right? Right. Uh, Not at this point. He was still living off of Canal at this point. He hadn't become governor yet. Okay. But But he's he's on, he's, he's financially, he's doing good. There is a split in the votes, uh, when the nomination for governor happens, um, initially, a well-heeled Afro-Creole is nominated, uh, a man by the name of Alexander Dumas. And when a, a t- Dunn doesn't want to be a lieutenant governor. In fact, Dunn is quite content 
joining his new wife and their family and just running his business. But uh, there is a split within the convention when the Afro-Creo candidate, Alexander Dumas, is not selected as the official candidate for the party. The Afro-Creos pledge to, to leave the party and only vote for their candidates. And Dunn realizes that this will mean that there could be a Republican Party that is voted on by blacks but has no black representation. Um, Mercer Langston is in town at the time, uh, and Mercer Langston visits Dunn at his home. And Dunn used to like to walk the city. And he goes on a long walk up and down Canal Street that lasts all night. And this is sort of a really, some of the more beautiful images in the book are, yeah, are here. Yeah. These nightscapes yeah. of Mercer Langston walking through the city trying to convince Dunn, look, you have to run because if you do not run, there will be no blacks in the party, controlling the party. Dunn... Uh, with the urging of his wife and Mercer, Dunn will agree to accept the nomination as lieutenant governor. And when he accepts this nomination and is elected, uh, one of the very first things that they do when they get control over the legislature is to put forth a bill um, named after uh, a black legislator, a man by the name of Isabel. It's called the Isabel Civil Rights Bill. And the Isabel Civil Rights Bill. Uh, what would have reinforced uh, the provisions of the 14th Amendment inside of the state law. So all state law would have matched with uh, this, this federal, uh, this new amendment to the Constitution. And they believe that this is a done deal because they believe that Warmoth, the liberal, is on their side. When, however, the bill gets to the governor's desk for signature, he vetoes it. Yeah, Warmoth and betrays them, right? Totally betrays uh, all of the blacks that had voted for him. And he says, eh, you know, I just don't think we're ready for this. And this will cause an enormous schism inside of the Republican Party from that point forward. Uh, from that point forward, Dunn emerges as the, the leader of the opposition Republican Party. Uh, facet of the Republican Party, and it's often referred to as the radical Republicans uh, against the conservatives, which are led by Warmoth. Yeah, so this, so al almost immediately, you start to see this division between Dunn and Warmoth after uh, initially Dunn helping him out, right? Right, and what, yeah. in fact, all the way to Dunn's deathbed, he keeps this. Uh, one of the very uh, last things that. He's recorded as saying is, you know, that there's only one thing that I regret, and that is introducing Warmoth to, um, you know, being the person who introduced Warmoth as a, a person we could trust, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, so tell us about um, Dunn's trip to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Grant, now President Grant, in the White House. Um, how was this trip both a triumph? but also a series of insults. In 1869, Dunn decides to go to Washington, D.C. to meet with the newly inaugurated uh, President Grant. Um, 
The purpose of this trip was twofold. First, he wanted to prove um, that blacks could use all the accommodations that whites had in travel. Um, and he also wanted to, to actually test the North. Um, right. Would you, are you, these, guys, are, these are now guaranteed by law. Right. Are you guys living up? You, you right. guys are passing these laws. Are you living up to uh, the very amendments that you are uh, putting into the Constitution? And from the onset of this trip, he's met with obstacle after obstacle. First, he purchases a first-class ticket, but is not allowed to have a first-class seat because that would put him in the presence of what were deemed to be acceptable white men and white women. So he was uh, sent to an all-black car. Then when he gets to the end of the line on that particular train route, he has to get out and get on an omnibus, uh, the precursor to modern buses. And uh, he's told that he, even though he has a first class ticket there, that he cannot sit with the guests. He has to sit on the top of the bus uh, because blacks aren't allowed to sit with uh, white patrons. And it isn't until he crosses into Ohio that he maintains that anyone treated him fairly or, or in accordance with the new laws that were passed. And he's, when, he's traveling He's traveling with a white uh, – He's traveling with white a white man. senator, a man by the white name senator. of Lynch. And Lynch points out uh, – and Lynch is very important to the trip because Lynch keeps pointing out uh, these differences. One of the things that Lynch points out in New Orleans is that all white legislatures were given a free ticket. Uh, to travel on the train anytime they wanted, first class. And he said none of the blacks were given this uh, similar tickets. So he turns his ticket back over to the, the, the railroad company in protest. When Dunn tries to uh, get lodging in D.C., he's turned down by hotels and told right. that he cannot come there. And you have to realize how bad this is. This is not done a regular ordinary guy. This is gun done lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana. Right, right. Yeah. Is absolutely. not allowed to uh to stay at the hotels. Um, I mean he, he has he has political power, he has class power. Right. He's a fairly wealthy man. Who who was who was the head of the railway that um the initial uh the initial moment when he's blocked and he wasn't allowed in the first class. You you're gonna love this. Oh yeah. None other then Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, the quintessential <laughs> Southern gentleman and the general who had fired the first shots of the Civil War. He fired the first shot and he's still fighting yeah. the Civil War as we're getting into Reconstruction, right? Yeah. And one of the, for me personally, as the writer of, of this narrative, for me, the turning point in the narrative is the decision that Beauregard will make later on that, hey, if I had to choose between Dunn or Warmoth, what I know of Dunn, Dunn's not so bad. <laughs> I prefer <laughs> Dunn to that. You're, 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 put, you're putting the cart before the horse right now. Let's, okay. let's, finish, let's, let's finish the Washington trip. So so th this trip is, 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 so far it's been a series of insults, right? Right. Yet, he, he he's he, the first elected 
a high black official, highest to, elected yeah, black official. To be honored before the Senate, he's the first mm-hmm. to actually have a private meeting with the president. The president and how, how does allies how does himself. The, yeah, how, how does it? How does it sorry, how does the meeting go with uh, with Grant? Well, it's mostly about appointments and making sure yeah. you get the people you want in positions of power. But you have to remember, Grant already doesn't like Warma. <laughs> so uh, Dunn realizes this is an appeal that he's making to someone who really is in total support of anyone in opposition to Warman. Uh-huh. So Dunn is able to win uh, Grant over to uh, his cause. So now he has powerful friends outside of the state in D.C., the, the president. The <laughs> I mean, president. Pow- exactly. Powerful <laughs> friend. One very powerful friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and but but again, then there's there's further insults in New York. In um, New York. That, he- that was that, that section to me reading that section. That was an emotional gut punch. Um, yeah. As, because as well you, you think of New as York. Is, yeah. I, I had I, I had to. It, the book's beautiful. It's the you, you tell the story so well. And I had to set it down for a few minutes when I read that section, because it was so like emotionally, it was just such a punch in the stomach, which is, I I think speaks to the power of what you've created with the book. A lot of people will think of New York during this period of time as this bastion of abolitionism. But when Dunn gets there, one of the first things that he's confronted with is he tries to check into the hotel, which he's, he, he has the funds to, to uh, retain a suite in the hotel, but he's told you can't stay in the suite in the hotel. You, if you're gonna stay at the hotel, you have to stay with uh, the staff, the butlers, and the cooks, and they all stay in the basement. So he, he's told he's got to go board with people, even though he's paid for a suite. He's got to go board with the the cooks in the basement. Then he calls on the governor. Uh, who had for a time lived in Louisiana, so he he thought that they might have things in common. The governor will write back that if he ever reaches out to him uh, in that manner to try to get him to entertain him socially, that he will have him kicked out of the hotel that he's staying at. But by the police, right? right. Like he's going to use his power. He's invited yeah. to to go to the stock exchange and a number <laughs> a number of the traders on the floor decide to pull a prank and this is a you have to think about this is a a dignitary traveling to your state um he's invited to the exchange and um, stockbrokers decide to pull a prank and Realizing that very few people know what Dunn actually looks like outside of the fact that he's a black man, um, they hire a barber to impersonate Dunn, show up at the exchange, take the tour as if he was Dunn, be questioned by the press, uh, which, uh, as you can imagine, he cannot answer any of these questions or any of these questions with any specific knowledge. So he makes a fool of of Dunn, and he makes a fool of the state of Louisiana. And this is all seen and dismissed as a a joke. 
and that is made by these junior traders. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that that that, that, that these sections, man, that it was that was really rough, um, but the such an important story. Um, well, so so things start to unravel in eighteen seventy and eighteen seventy one. I mean, there's this divide between. Um, Lieutenant Governor Dunn and Governor Warmoth. What, um, how do things really start to hit the fan as we get into um, into these years? The biggest opposition happens after Warmoth has a an injury on a boat. They dedicated a, a steamboat in his honor. He takes a a trip on the steamboat and he puts his foot on the paddle wheel, and his foot is crushed. Uh, and you would think that, okay, he's going to be out of office for a while. And the Constitution had already created provisions for if if an, a medical emergency or some emergency happened to the governor, that the lieutenant governor would take his place. But a Warmoth realizing this, realizes this is an opportunity for Dunn, so he cannot uh, take leave. So what he does is disappears. And in his absence, there are a lot of things going on in the city. Um, There are uh, European sailors that have killed a Malaysian uh, sailor that are... A Malaysian sailor? Yes, uh, an Asian sailor. Yeah, I believe uh, he was either from the Philippines or Malaysia. Southeast Uh, Asia connection, I'm always interested. (laughs) Southeast Asia. (laughs) And uh, Dunn is asked to intercede on their behalf by a number of a number of European consulates, and Dunn realizes that this puts him in a very precarious position. This man has killed uh, a person of color. Uh, if I just let them go, then there's going to be backlash against me. And initially, he thinks, well, maybe this is something that Warmoth has set up just so I fall into this trap. But at this point, he really doesn't realize how injured Warmoth is. And he replies, look, I, I cannot just you know let you guys have him and turn, turn him over. The courts here have said that these men are to be executed. If I were a white man, I could do, I could do what you're asking me to do. But as a black man, there'd be no rest for me if I just let somebody go. Um, and the men are executed. Uh, in the meantime, he's governing the state. And he doesn't quite know where Warmoth is. Warmoth's secretary, a man by, Bra- by the name of Bragdon, is actually feeding all the information to Warmoth, who is actually taken off to his coastal home in, in a neighboring uh, Bay St. Louis. Uh and when Dunn gets, uh, when Dunn, when word gets back to Dunn that Warmoth is very ill and has left the state, he will try to take possession of the state under the Constitution. Now he'll try to become the acting governor, and uh, Warmoth's secretary uh, refuses to hand these authorities over to him. So he hires a blacksmith to pick the lock of the governor's office so he can go into the governor's office and begin uh, running the state. 
And when Brogdon gets word of this, he runs into the governor's office, takes all of the the books and records that are there, and hightails it on the fastest train that he can to Governor Warman. Um, Dunn, in the meantime, begins running the state while he's gone. And this will uh, cause Warmoth to uh, prematurely decide to leave his convalescence and return back and return to the city of New Orleans. When he returns to the city of New Orleans, he maintains that Dunn is not acting governor, even though he was acting within the capacity of, of the state's constitution that had just been written. And he maintains that um, any of the things that Dunn had done would have to be undone. And this should sound very, very familiar to people Mm -hmm. just coming Mm -hmm. from the the Trump (laughs) years of watching uh, the work of one executive officer be totally upended by his uh, predecessor. And and one of the saddest parts of this is there's a gentleman who's arrested. He's a police officer and he's arrested for taking a bribe. And and what, what happened to the police officer is he was given a gift by someone who worked on his beat. It was reported. The police officer was arrested. Um, the judge did not want to convict the police officer. The prosecutor did not want to uh, uh, convict the police officer. Everyone involved in the trial said, okay, this is a letter of the law, but you know we don't really want to convict this individual. Um, and he was sent to jail. In Warman's absence, Dunn pardons that individual. And when he returns, uh, Warmoth has the man rearrested and thrown <laughs> thrown back into prison. And that, what this chapter or this episode in the book shows is as they approach the impending convention of 1870, that it is going to be a violent convention like the Republicans had never known. And it won't be Democrat against Republican. It's going to be Republican against Republican. And just as they both had presumed that this was going to be violent, um, the violent ratchets up and they begin using the opposing police forces uh, against (laughs) one another. as they and, start, and they have to rely on on federal support. The radical Republicans have to right. They the have radical to, Republicans, Dunn's faction, actually goes yeah. to the federal customs house and decides to hold a convention there. After Warmoth um, puts deposits on every hall in the in the city, he, I mean, he becomes so wealthy as as governor that he can literally rent out every possible venue that they could have the convention at and say, well, if you have the convention, I have to control it because I control all these venues. So done. This, this uh, was a guy that would, that fled Texas in scandal <laughs> broke just what, four years ago. Yeah. By this point, he's fantastically wealthy. He is, he is the quintessential carpetbagger, the quintessential yeah. person that comes in with nothing and through graft and bribery, is able to amass a fortune. Yeah. So and that um so tell us about the um the final few months of Oscar Dunn's life and his uh his death which has a 
a, a, an air of mystery about it. I mean, it's it, it, there's some questions there, right? Right. The radicals have na- now have Warmoth on the run. The right. radicals have Warmoth up for impeachment. And it looks as though they're going to be successful and Dunn will be ascending to the governor's position. Um, Dunn regularly speaks throughout the city. He goes to dinner and he makes a speech at a public engagement and he becomes deathly ill after the dinner. Um, many believe that Dunn was poisoned. Because um, he's, he's very healthy prior to this. He's very vibrant. Oh, yeah, very vibrant, very healthy. Yeah. Just out of the blue becomes ill and within days dies. Yeah. Uh, And many people maintain, and like I said, there are several storylines that are followed throughout the book on what could have happened to Dunn. You know, was he poisoned? Was it uh, possibly an honor killing? Because uh, one of his rivals was PBS Pinchback and PBS Pinchback had his own a publication, the Louisianian, uh, a newspaper that put out conservative Republican propaganda. Uh, Pinchback had threatened to expose something about Dunn's family uh, in 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 the coming days if Dunn did not resign, and then Dunn becomes deathly ill and dies. Yeah. Um, so some people say. Maybe he was poisoned. Others say maybe uh, he poisoned himself, killed himself rather than have this information come out about him and his family. Others still say he just died of natural causes. Uh, we won't. We probably will never know what happened to Dunn unless the body's exhumed. Um, yeah. And I don't know if there is a movement afoot in Louisiana to exhume Dunn's body and actually find out if foul play uh, was a part of it. But they were. there have been a number of speculations, contemporary speculations, that he was poisoned with arsenic. Right, right. And and um, his, de- his funeral was huge, right? Huge. And all sorts of dignitaries. Um, tell, tell us about... The commemoration of, of Oscar Dunn's life. Yeah, state government was shut down uh, to honor Dunn. All the schools were closed, um, and Democrat and Republican alike by this point had grown to respect Dunn as being a fair uh, legislator, a fair uh, executive officer. Even, and- even Beauregard, right? Even Beauregard, a man, Even Beauregard. A, a man that would not let him sit in a first-class area with a first-class ticket, uh, was resigned uh, when asked who he preferred, uh, Warmoth or Dunn. And he said that he preferred uh, Dunn uh, to Warmoth. This notion that, you know, the quintessential Confederate would rather have a black guy running the state than a white man um, flies in the face of everything that that I was taught about Reconstruction and flies in the face of everything that I was taught about the Jim Crow era that followed it. This this notion that they would see an African-American as more fit uh, than a former colonel 
in the U.S. in the, in the U.S. Army. Even a colonel like Warmoth, that that the notion that he would be seen as a, a person of sterling character uh, says a lot yeah, about it. Yeah, it it speaks to uh, levels of nuance and complexity in in the Reconstruction that sort of been pushed aside. I mean, you you say in the book that you think that um, Reconstruction is one of the most misunderstood periods in American history. Yes, and and. It's one of the ones that we need right now to understand. Uh, one of the things I uh, I get I do a lot of interviews about uh, the book lately and about Reconstruction. And one of the things I keep telling uh, people who are interviewing me is all of the things that we are seeing now in our country. We've seen similar things happen in the past. That you know. When you talk about the Battle of Liberty Place and taking over the government and and people rising up and uh, by the by force taking the government and running the police off, this has happened in New Orleans. And when we talk about how do we deal with the people who have participated in these acts of uh, sedition, we have to remember that in. During Reconstruction, we chose really not to pursue people, and that just made them more emboldened, and it just made uh, more and more people join in the mission of overthrowing the state. So one of the things that I have to routinely point out is it's incumbent upon us to protect the union that we have and to protect the peace. And to uh, make sure that civil right, these civil rights amendments stay intact. Right now, we're we're in a period that some people are already calling the second Jim Crow, as people are as as politicians are attacking voting voting voters' rights. So it's important for us to realize that we can go backwards. You know, not only history isn't just linear, you know, it just doesn't yep. happen this straight Absolutely, line. absolutely. Because, I mean, in, in this, just to circle back to this moment after Dunn's death, I mean, there's this incredible memorial for him. Um, Frederick Douglass comes to speak. Right. To raise uh, money for his family, he speaks. For his family. A collection is started right. and funds allocated for a memorial to Dunn. I mean, the, the thinking in the mid 1870s is that there's going to be a statue of done in New Orleans, right? I mean, they, not, not every, just everybody. a statue. They put $10,000 aside, which was an enormous sum. 1870s, $10,000. <laughs> yeah. Not 2020s, not, 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 not $10,000. Right. <laughs> that's an enormous amount of money. Yeah. And they put a comparable amount aside to build him a tomb befitting of what he meant to the state. And neither of those is ever erected. Because right, of the Jim Crow period that follows. Yeah, along comes 1877, right? Right. Reconstruction collapses, um, and then Jim Crow, and then this this history is erased. And we we don't have a we don't see a monument to Dunn, but who do we see st- a statue of? Beauregard. Beauregard, <laughs> the quintessential <laughs> who, who fired the first shot in the Civil War. I mean, exactly. That the dark poetic irony of that just again this this book for me had a couple of emotional gut punches and that one was just like ah oh. but dunn um, couldn't survive his memory 
there's yeah. no way they could have allowed Dunn's memory to survive in Jim in the Jim Crow South. Yeah, I mean it was too powerful a symbol for uh, people to sur- to encamp around and to believe in. Um, one of the things when I think of Jim Crow, I think of a sense of hopelessness and a sense of constant fear, um, of violence. And to know that there was a person born in slavery that rose out of it to the highest offices in the land was considered for the vice presidency of the United States. Right. We, yeah. we skipped over that. Grant was considering him as a VP. Yeah, they, their their correspondence is very. They're like, look, hey, you know, if Dunn's able to push out Warmus, maybe he might be a good running mate for you that can secure all the black boat in the South. And, and one of the things that I my students tend to love about discussions of Dunn are discussions that historians are often told to to steer away from the counterfactual. Mm-hmm. You know, what would Dunn have meant? Had he lived, you know, how far would he have gone had he lived? You know, what would that have meant for race relations? You know, would the Colfax massacre have taken place? The Khrushchev case would the election of 1877 and the immense violence that took place in Louisiana would have been able to take place had he been governor? Unlikely. It might have been a very clear Republican victory in 1876. Right. Right, if he could deliver Louisiana. Then there wouldn't have been a need for a compromise of 1877. And then no no end of Reconstruction. Right. Oh, man. So to think I mean, out so these I mean, models, yeah, I, I love then, exploring them with my students because it makes them think about the importance of dates and the importance of events and, and how these events transpire and, and how easily they could have been thwarted. And then just just what a turning point that is for 1877 uh, for the way history unfolds, but also for history in terms of events, but also for the writing of history. Correct. 1877, fast forward 99 years, and what do you have? Uh, a young student in class being told that there never was a black lieutenant governor, right? Exactly. I mean, this is this set, this sets the pattern for the narrative for a century plus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, when, when the, when the, when your book comes to an end, like, and it all becomes clear, it's just really powerful. So just to, to wrap up, what, um, what would you want to see for a memorial for Oscar Dunn, um, in New Orleans? I mean, the, the book is entitled monumental, right? Right. Which is, uh, there's a little, there's a little clue there, <laughs> right? A, yeah, there's what, a little, uh, little hint that there's something going you, on. You you know about public history too, right? So exactly. Um, I like what's going on right now. Um, right now, there was a committee established by the city council uh, to look at the renaming of streets and parks. And there is a park that overlooks uh that overlooks Jackson Square, and it's currently uh, named the Washington uh, Battery Park, uh, named after a Confederate uh, artillery unit. And they have nominated uh, Dunn to replace Dunn's uh, name to replace that name. 
is the name of the park. And I think that it, that would be a fitting site uh, for uh, Dunn. And, but more importantly, I think it's important that we bring these narratives to the classrooms and use those narratives to empower the children of the city and the children of the region to realize that they had been more than just slaves there. Their ancestors had been more than just slaves to the city um, and in the city and in the South. That, you know, much of what we consider America was built on those individuals and by those individuals and that they are an integral part of American society. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, again, just adding some complexity, some nuance to that memory of Reconstruction that it it could have gone differently, exploring the counterfactual. And, and, and yeah, as you said, the precariousness of, of our institutions, that things can be pushed, pushed backwards. Um, so you've been really generous with your time. Um, I just got two more questions for you. Um, first, can you suggest two books for the audience? Okay. I've got one that okay. is brand new, so people may have not heard of it. It's it. called... Okay. Uh, and I'll show you. I don't know if the guests can see it, but Economy Hall, the, the, podcast. Hidden, <laughs> the Economy Hall, the hidden, the hidden history of the Free Black Brotherhood. So hmm. Economy Hall, who, it, it's, it's written by uh, Fatima Sheikh. Fatima Sheikh, she's out of Economy New York. Hall. Yeah, fantastic. Her father um, recovered the records of Economy Hall out of a dust heap that was going to go to the trash. And she uses those records to tell of this group of free black men, mostly Afro-Creoles in the city and what they were doing during Reconstruction. So this is in the backdrop of everything that we've talked about. What are the free blacks and what are the Afro-Creoles doing inside of their benevolent societies and organizations to manifest the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. It's a fantastic book. And, and this is a history that's been silenced and the documentation was almost lost and saved by chance. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, it yeah. was quite literally on a heap to go to the dump. Her father had the vision and, and realized how important these records were and saved them. Wow. Wow. Okay. okay. All right. The second, Stony yep. the Road, uh, by uh, Henry Louis Gates. Fantastic mm-hmm. book. Tells the story of Reconstruction and connects a Reconstruction's past, the, the past history of Reconstruction, to our, our current. So I think that that's fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and finally, what are you working on now? What, what can we hope to see from you next? I'd like to do a series of what I call Difficult Histories. And I would like to do them on, on a graphic platform. Um, I'd like to tell um, some stories about massacres um, for sundown, sundown towns, um, forced expulsions. Uh, so I, I've got a lot of stories to tell. I don't want to give too many details out mm-hmm, about those mm-hmm. stories. But these are things that middle school, high school teachers may not be very, very versed in talking about, something they might be uncomfortable talking about, and a way that they can approach these in the classroom um, in a way where they, they'll feel more 
confident about talking about it. I think that these books are important uh, to our narrative and important uh, to developing empathy between the communities of color in this nation. Absolutely, absolutely. And they, along those lines, Carlos Cahill has that uh, excellent uh, graphic history of the murder of Emmett Till Fantastic. Um, out with Oxford. And um, yeah, no, I, that that sounds wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for uh, for speaking with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's always great to see you, man. This has been a conversation with Brian K. Mitchell, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Arkansas, Little Rock, about his graphic history, Monumental, Oscar Dunn and his Radical Fight in Reconstruction, Louisiana, published by the Historic New Orleans Collection in 2021. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.